You know, I'm so thankful for people like John Bryant who can go from one instrument to the next like no problem. So thankful for our praise band. There's a lot that goes on. And, uh, you know, when one person misses for whatever reason, it kind of makes things a little bit more challenging. So we are dependent on the body of Christ to make things happen. And so I hope that we'll kind of capture that this morning as we're continuing our series on Operation Abraham. And then we're in the part two of uh, last week's sermon. You know, I was thinking about when I was a high school student, I didn't really value history much. I don't know how much you enjoy history or you don't enjoy history, but when I was a high school student, I really didn't. And when I was a college student, I really didn't enjoy uh, history very much. But these days, I'm a whole lot more intrigued by history. You know, one of the things I really enjoy reading about is the military strategies that were used historically because a lot of times those military strategies were the catalyst that really gave a nation a victory. And so sometimes I just like to read about those strategies or those military operations. And one of those military operations that I read about was uh, led by a man named Winston Churchill. How many of you have ever heard of Winston Churchill? Anybody? Okay, most of you have heard of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was the prime minister of the United Kingdom during World War II. Now, Church, Winston Churchill was known for his speeches, but he's also known for his wit. I mean, he was kind of witty and... And on one occasion, Winston Churchill had a, he was having a little, I guess, uh, he was at odds with one of his parliamentarians by the name of Nancy Astor. And uh, they, were, they were known not to be, uh, you know, in sync with one another. They didn't get along very well. And so in one conversation, Nancy Astor said to Winston Churchill, if I were your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. And Winston Churchill said, well, if I were your husband, I would drink it. <laughs> and on another occasion, a lady said to Winston Churchill, you know, you are a drunk and you are di disgustingly drunk. He replied, he, this is his reply. He said, madam, you are ugly. Tomorrow I will be sober. <laughs> now, Winston Churchill wasn't always politically correct. But one thing I will give Winston Churchill, he had a great resolve in defending the United Kingdom. And so the United Kingdom, whenever he became the prime minister, was in great distress during World War II. Uh, when he became prime minister, 370,000 of the British troops were really pinned down at a French port called Dunkirk. And they were, they were in, entrenched. They had the German army on one side and they had the ocean on the other. They were, they were entrenched. And so uh, they were on the verge of being captured. They were on the verge of being killed. And if that happened, the British military would have been decimated. It would really have been an end of the battle for them. But they were stationed there on the uh, French coast to help the French avoid a German invasion. But it, but it looked very dismal. And so in light of those circumstances, some of Churchill's opposition wanted him to negotiate with Hitler a plan of peace, which meant that they would be subservient in some form or fashion to Hitler and under Hitler's tyranny. So in response to those pleas for negotiation, Winston Churchill gave a speech to the House of Commons just days after he was elected as prime minister. And this is what he said, and I'll quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, and tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many months of struggle and suffering. Now you ask, what is our policy? I say to you, it is to wage war by land, sea, and air. With all, we're going to war with all our might and with all our strength, the strength that God has given us. 
and to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. And you ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory, victory at all cost. Victory in spite of all terrors. Victory however long and hard the road may be. What a powerful speech. And after that speech, Winston Churchill implemented an operation called Operation Dynamo. And it was an effort to rescue those 370,000 troops there on the coast of France. And so Operation Dynamo called on the concerted effort of over 800 military ships and civilian boats to make their way to the port in Dunkirk and rescue those 370,000 men. And that's exactly what they did. In just a matter of days, with all those 800, over 800 vessels, they rescued all 370,000 men. It was called the Dunkirk Miracle. And when I think about Churchill's speech and I think about his resolve to rescue those who've been taken captive, I think it really applies to us as we think about Operation Abraham this morning. And we are at war with a monstrous dictator, and his name is Satan. And too many people want to negotiate with Satan. They want to appease him so he'll just leave them alone. But you cannot negotiate with Satan. Would you agree with that? We are in a battle against him. You cannot serve Jesus and appease Satan. We are in a battle. Now let me just say this. If you are an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, Satan has waged war against you. Did you know that Satan wages war against anything that God has made sacred? He has waged war against all humanity because we bear the image of God. He has waged war on marriages because they reflect Christ and His church. He has waged war on our families. He has waged war on the gift of gender. He has waged war on the gift of sex. He has waged war on race. He has waged war on the church. He is waging a war on our children. Would you agree with that? We're in a battle for our children. There's an effort to capture the hearts and mind of our children. You know, I just read where Disney is featuring a cross-dressing character named Gonzo in its Muppet Baby series. And in this series, Gonzo wants to go to the royal ball, but he wants to go dressed as a princess. And so the, the, the girls in this particular video series said, well, you need to dress like a, a prince, like all the other boys. You can't go as a... Uh, a princess. You got to dress as a knight, not, not as a princess. Well, Gonzo was upset, and so his fairy rat father, father comes to him and grants him his wish. Fairy rat, uh, rat father, I guess that's how you pronounce it, waves his magic wand, and poof, Gonzo becomes Gonzarella, and he goes to the royal ball, and nobody recognizes who he is. There is a war on our children. You know, I, I recently read some lyrics by a San Francisco choral group. It's a gay choral group, and these are the lyrics. I read this on a few Wednesday nights ago at our Wednesday night Bible study. But I think they bear repeating. This is from a gay choral group out of San Francisco, and these are the lyrics that was posted on YouTube. You think we're sinful. You fight against our rights. You say we all lead lives that you can't respect. But you're just frightened. You think we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. Funny, just this once, you are correct. We'll convert your children, happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you'll barely notice it. And then it ends with these words, we're coming for them, we're coming for your children. We're coming for them, we're coming for them, we're coming for your children. We are in a battle. 
And this is not a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. This is not a military battle. This is a spiritual battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul said this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our war is not with people. Our war is with powers and principalities and the wicked philosophies of this world. That's where our war begins. And we have a spiritual armament that we need to employ. Our weaponry is not physical, it is spiritual. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the Apostle Paul said it this way, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And would you agree this morning that, that, that Satan has a stronghold on a lot of people this morning? Satan has a lot of stronghold on a lot of believers today. And we are in a battle for believers. You know, if I were to revise Winston Churchill's speech for our battle, I would say it something like this. I wish I could think of it like he did. But this is what I would say. We have nothing to offer but the Word of God and the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Our policy is to wage war by daily putting on the full armor of God and being filled with the Spirit of God. We are to fight this war in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would quote Zechariah 4.6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Our aim, in one word, is victory. And the victory is already won. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we started a, a two-part sermon on Operation Abraham. And I believe that God gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm excited about the victory. But we began this two-part sermon on Operation Abraham. And by God's grace, we're going to finish it today. So if you'll turn in your Bibles or turn on to Genesis chapter 14... And we want to look there in Genesis 14. Now you might remember from last week that we read about the very first battle that was ever mentioned in the Bible. We read about the very first war that was ever mentioned in Scripture. Four kings who aligned themselves against five kings in a battle. These four kings went down to Sodom and they battled against the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and all they're allies. They're three allies. And so it's four kings against three. Well, these four kings conquered the king of Sodom and they conquered the king of Gomorrah. And they took all those possessions and they took all the people. Well, there was a man there who was living in Sodom and his name was Lot. And so Lot and his family and all his possessions were taken captive just like everyone else. If you live in Sodom, you, re you reap what Sodom reaps. So then we look back in Genesis 14 and and we're going to begin in verse 10. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 9. That was your assignment last week. You were supposed to read all those names and memorize them for today. I hope you did that. You're going to have to give, uh, you're going to have to give an account on your way out. But look in verse 10. Now, now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they... And that's King Ketelamor and his alliance, those four kings. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. 
Then one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the Terebinth trees in Mamre. The Amorite, the brother of Eskel, the brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is, in, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought his brother Lot and his goods as well as the woman, I mean, excuse me, the women and the people. Now what we find here is Abraham was willing to fight for what these kings had taken captive. He was willing to, to battle for those believers who had been taken captive or had drifted away for some reason. And we need to fight for the, the believers of First Baptist Church who have drifted away or been taken captive by the world in some way. And so we see in Abraham an example of how to fight for believers. Now I told you last week that Abraham was a spiritual man. In Genesis 13, 18, it says that Abraham moved his tent and he went and dwelt by the Terebinth trees of Mamre which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Now remember, last week I told you what Mamre meant, means, right? It means what? Fullness. And Hebron means what? Fellowship. Abraham wanted to be in fellowship with God. He wanted the fullness of God. And last week we talked about when you are in fellowship with God, then you begin to have a heart for God. When you are in close fellowship with God, you begin to have a, a heart of God. And Abraham had been in fellowship with God and he had a heart of God. Do you know what God's heart is? God's heart is to have compassion on those who have wandered away. God's heart is to have compassion on those who have been captured by the enemy. And Lot was a believer. He was a believer in God, but he was living like a lost person. And he'd been taken captive. Lot was a worldly man, and he got captured by the enemy. And Abraham was a spiritual man, and he had compassion on Lot. If you're going to be part of God's rescue mission, you have got to be a spiritual man or a spiritual woman. I'm going to remind you what Galatians 6.1 says. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one. We need to be spiritual. Abraham was a spiritual man. Now, if you missed that message last week, you can go to our YouTube page and you can listen to it. But Abraham was a spiritual man. But I want to give you point number two. Abraham was a separated man. He was separated from the world. He lived in Canaan, but he didn't live as Canaan. He didn't live like Canaan. He knew how to function in the world without being influenced by the world. He lived in the world, but did not live like the world. You know, Abraham was living in a foreign land. He was living in the land of Canaan. Now, you remember that God told Abraham that he was going to give the land of Canaan to his descendants as an inheritance. Do you remember that? God promised him the land, but whenever Abraham was living there, it didn't belong to him. He was a foreigner. He was an outsider. And Abraham was living in Canaan, but he would not move his tent into the city to become a Canaanite. The Bible says that he kept his tent in memory at Hebron because he wanted to be in fellowship with God. He knew how to be content to live in his tent instead of have a, have a permanent dwelling in the city. 
You see, Abraham, when you live in a tent, you know, what, you know what living in a tent means? It means you're just passing through. You don't put down your roots. You just know you're a stranger. You're a pilgrim. You're just passing through. And Abraham realized that. So he remained separated from the Canaanites. Now I need to remind you that Abraham did business with the Canaanites. He bought from them. He sold to them. He interacted with them. In, in, uh, in, verse, in verse 13, it says that he was an allies with them. But he refused to live like them. He was a separated man. Look at verse 13. It says, The one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the Tirbanth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskel, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now this fugitive escaped from Sodom, and he came and told Abraham, the Hebrew. You know, that's interesting. He referred to Abraham as the Hebrew. It's the first time we see Hebrew, someone called a Hebrew in the Bible. Abraham didn't call himself Hebrew. That's what the Canaanites referred to Abraham as, as the Hebrew. Do you know what the, Hebrew, what the word Hebrew meant? It meant foreigner. It meant the one who came from the other side. So they were saying, Abraham came from the other side, and now he's on our side. But he's the one from the other side. He's a foreigner. He's different. He lived differently. You know, Abraham didn't have to go around telling everybody he was different. They knew it. It was obvious. He was different. And so these Canaanites recognized him as someone from the other side. Someone from the other side. You see, Abraham didn't worship what they worshipped. They worshipped Baal. He didn't live for what they lived for. They lived for pleasure. Abraham worshipped Yahweh, Jehovah God. And he lived to please him. He didn't live like they did. He was from the other side. You know, when you crossed over from your sin to salvation, did you know you'll live differently? When you have crossed over from darkness to light, you will live differently. When you cross over from death to life, you are going to live differently. And it's going to be noticeable. You're going to be different. And when you crossed over, you live in the world, but you do not live like the world. Amen? You live differently. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17... Thank you, John Henry. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. There is a difference. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. We're from the other side. And he says he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. I want you to hear this. God has made you a new creation so that you can be a minister of reconciliation. He has made you new so that you can be a minister of reconciliation. Do you know what it means to be a minister of reconciliation? It means that you are reconciling two people who are at odds. You are reconciling two people who have been separated. God has given you and He's given me the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling people who are at odds and bringing them back together. That is our mission. We're reconciling people to Christ. I wonder sometimes why this fugitive came to Abraham and told him about Lot being captured. Why did he go to Lot, uh, Abraham? Because he knew there was something different about Abraham. There was something unique about Abraham. He lived differently. He lived separately. Now why is it important for you and I to live separate from this world? What difference does it make? Think about 2 Corinthians 5.20. 
The Apostle Paul said this, Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God has given you that ministry of reconciliation. He's made you an ambassador of Christ to plead with people to be reconciled to God. We have this ministry. Do you know what it means to be an ambassador? It means you represent another kingdom from another world. You crossed over. We represent Christ. We represent His kingdom. You know, I heard Adrian Rogers talk about uh, something in his own life. When he went to Washington, he went to the presidential inauguration. And after leaving the inauguration, he got into a cab. He was dressed kind of nicely. And, and the cab driver said, uh, you know, what kind of work do you do? Adrian Rogers says, well, I'm an ambassador. And that guy says, oh, really? You're an ambassador? He said, well, uh, well, from where? He said, well, from a very important place. <laughs> And the guy says, well, um, who are you? He said, well, I serve a king, Adrian Rogers said. And the cab driver said, a king? Really? He said, well, what kind of king? He said, and Adrian Rogers said, well, I'm his ambassador. I serve the greatest king that's ever lived. And this cab driver was so impressed. He said, I am an ambassador for King Jesus. Did you know that you are an ambassador for King Jesus? You are his representative on this earth. You are the one that he has put into your hands, the ministry of reconciliation. You represent the kingdom of Christ. You you, uh, represent the kingdom of Christ in your business. You represent the kingdom of Christ in the community. You represent uh, the kingdom of Christ in the marketplace or on the rec field, wherever you are. You represent the kingdom of Christ. You are his ambassador. But you know, when you're an ambassador... You're also accountable to the king you represent. And one day, you and I will have to give an account to King Jesus for how we represented him in this world. You know, do you ever wonder why some people, some Christians can't inspire somebody to become an authentic follower of Jesus Christ? Some Christians don't inspire anybody to follow Christ because they live just like the world. They look like the world. They worship the same gods of the world. So instead instead of representing the kingdom of Christ, they're representing themselves. They're on agenda. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, it says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. If we're going to represent Christ... If we're going to influence people, if we're going to battle for believers, we need to come out and be separate. We need to live differently. So Abraham was a spiritual man. Abraham was a separated man. But you know, Abraham was also a searching man. Look at verse 14. He was a searching man. It says, Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, you know, some of you have been to Israel. You know that Dan, Dan is the very furthest tip, the most extreme northern tip of Israel. It's as far as you can go. It really reflects how adamant Abraham was willing to search for that person who'd been taken captive. He was willing to go to the extreme. He searched for Lot. But why did he do that? The Bible says here that Abraham referred to his nephew as his brother. 
I mean, I, I, yeah, Lot is his brother. From an earthly perspective, Abraham was Lot's uncle. But from a kingdom perspective, Abraham was Lot's brother. Aren't we brothers and sisters in Christ? Hasn't God united us under the blood of Christ and made us family, brothers and sisters? We have the same father. We have the same son. We have the same spirit. We have the same salvation. We are united under the blood of Christ. We are family. We are blood related. You know, I've always heard that blood's thicker than water. You ever heard that? But we are related by the blood of Christ. It can't get any thicker than that. We are family. And so the blood that united Abraham and Lot motivated Abraham to search for Lot. He was motivated. Now think about verse 13. This guy comes to Abraham and he brings news that Lot's been captured. He said, you know, Lot's down there in in Sodom and and, uh, these kings came and they kidnapped him. And he he gives this report to, to Abraham. What happens when we get that report? How do we respond? How do we respond to a brother who's wandered off the path? How do we respond to a brother or sister who's been captivated by the influence of this world? Should we say, well, they did that to themselves. They were pursuing the world. That's kind of what they get. Is that how we respond? Or do we say, well, you know, it's really none of my business. I don't feel like I really need to get involved with that. Or do we begin to condemn them for being so unspiritual? Or do we criticize them for drifting off the path? Do we act like Winnie the Pooh when his friend Eeyore fell in the river? Now, how many of y'all have ever heard of Winnie the Pooh? Anybody? Is that still politically correct today? I mean, there's so many things that aren't. I don't know if Winnie the Pooh is still politically correct. But in one episode of Winnie the Pooh, the donkey Eeyore was walking too close to the edge of the river, just like some of us do. We walk so close to the edge of sin. And then he finally fell in. And the moment that he fell in, he's struggling for his life. And Winnie the Pooh's on the, on the bank there. And he says, did you fall in? And you think, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Yes, I'm in the river. And then Winnie the Pooh says, well, you know, you should have been more careful. <laughs> and Eeyore says, well, thanks for the advice. <laughs> The Eeyore needed some action, not necessarily advice at the moment. And then Winnie the Pooh said, hey, I think you're sinking. <laughs> when someone's been taken captive, do we just state the obvious? Do we just watch them sink? Can you imagine drowning and nobody makes an effort to lift you out? Can you imagine being lost or kidnapped and nobody is searching for you? Did you know that any one of us could be taken captive by this world at any moment? All it takes is for us to get our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. All it takes is for one one of us to wander off the path and begin to drift. It's really easy to to wonder. We're so prone. And do you know that some of the godliest men in the Bible wandered off the path in their lives? I mean, I think about Noah. Noah wandered off later in life. Jonah wandered off the path. David wandered off the path. Samson wandered off the path. Peter wandered off the path. All of them prone to wander. But they were rescued 
But they were restored. God restored them. And God has put you and me on his rescue team, on his search and rescue team to go rescue those who have wandered off, for those who have been taken captive. We are his special forces to rescue the the believer who's wandered off. You know, I kind of like the lyrics to a song by Lauren Daigle. It's the song Rescue. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. You are not hidden. There's never been a moment that you were forgotten. You are not hopeless. Though you have been broken and your innocence stolen, I hear you whisper underneath your breath. I hear your SOS. I will send out an army to find you in the middle of the darkest night. It's true. I will rescue you. We are God's rescue plan. He's given us that mission to rescue James 5.19 says this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. I can really try to unpack that verse for you. But let me just kind of sum it up in a, and we'll talk about it later. But when you rescue a believer from the bonds of sin and Satan, James says you rescue his soul, I believe, from a premature death and from a multitude of sins. He's talking about believers. He's not talking about a person who lost their salvation. I think he's talking about a person who has a premature death because they were engrossed in a life of sin as a believer. And we're to search for the way we're believer and restore them. That's what Operation Abraham is all about. We're searching for those who wandered off. For whatever reason. Now listen, I know searching for a wayward believers is not easy. I know it's not even comfortable. I know it can be very difficult. It can be even hurtful. You know, searching for a wayward believer is like searching for a lost dog. You might get bitten. A few years ago, I was in Africa on a mission trip. And Thomas Jordan went by my house to drop off some food for Kathy. Some food that Ellen had cooked for her. And I had a Siberian husky. His name was Aspen. Aspen was not really a temper- I mean, he was not really a pleasant dog around people. He was very temperamental. He's very unpredictable. He's not necessarily known to be friendly, but he was a very spiritual dog. I mean, he really was. I mean, he took the Bible, my Bible, the one I read every day, and in one sitting, he consumed the whole Gospel of John. <laughs> he was a very spiritual dog, but he was prone to wonder. That's just this is nature. And one day when Thomas came by my house, he opened the front door and Aspen, my husky, ran out of the front door. And Kathy looked at Thomas and he said, well, you're going to have to go get him because he won't come back. Thomas did not like that prospect at all. And so he spent, I don't know how long, chasing my husky all over Dylan, knowing that any moment this temperamental but spiritual husky might bite him in an attempt to rescue him. When we search for wayward Christians, you might, you might get bitten. You might get barked at. I think about what happened to Jesus when he came on his rescue mission. When Jesus came on his mission to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you know how those that Jesus came to save responded to Jesus? We just sang about it. They ridiculed him. They rejected him. They reviled him. They stood in the streets 
and cried out for him to be crucified. They preferred a murderous thief by the name of Barabbas over the precious Son of God. And these are the people that Jesus died to save. They crucified the Lamb of God. And when I think what Jesus was willing to go through to save us, don't you think we can endure a few blows to reach out to the lost? Can't we endure a few dog bites? Now, I mean that in a metaphorical sense. I'm not asking you to go out and get bitten by dogs, okay? That's not what I'm saying. You know, Joe and Connie said they were visiting somewhere last week and, and uh, they ran up on a German shepherd. And uh, Joe said he had teeth and they looked like they were attached. So they decided not to get out. That's okay. But what I'm saying is we might take some blows when we reach out to people. Because people might not realize that we are really trying to aid them. You know, one of the greatest things you can ever do is restore a brother who's drifted away. The only greater thing would be to lead a lost person to Christ. And so Abraham was a spiritual man. He pursued God. He was a separated man. He lived in the world, but not like the world. He was a searching man. He went after Lot and his family. But also, Abraham was a strategic man. He didn't just go off half-cocked looking for Lot. He had a strategic plan. He was very purposeful in what he did. And in verse 14, it says, Abraham, when he heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abraham took 318 men, his trained men, and he armed them. He equipped them for battle. If you and I want to get engaged in the battle, we need to be armed, and we need to arm ourselves with the Word of God. That is our weaponry, the sword of the Spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of thoughts and intents of the hearts. The Word of God is a weapon of precision. It pierces the soul and the spirit. The Bible says that it discerns our thoughts and the very intents of our hearts. So we arm ourselves with the Word of God. Do you know how to arm yourself with the Word of God? You have to spend time with it. You have to read it. You have to meditate on it and contemplate what it says and how it applies in your life when you live it out. If we're going to be equipped, we need to be involved in the body of Christ. That's why your connect group is so important. That's why our small groups called life groups are so important when we start those in September. That's why our Wednesday night Bible study for our adults is so important because we want to be equipped. And Abraham's men, the Bible says, were well trained. But I also want you to notice how Abraham approached the enemy. Look at verse 15. The Bible says that he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is, in, which is north of Damascus. Now the Bible says that Abraham divided his army and he went against them at night. Do you know, if you, if you were to surround any camp with 318 men at night in the cover of darkness, it would seem like 318,000 men at night. It's terrifying. Well, Abraham had a strategy. He had a purpose behind what he was doing. He divided his men and he surrounded his enemy. 
I started thinking about how we need to, as a church body, when we go out, right now we're the church gathered, but in just a few moments when we dismiss, we'll be the church scattered, and we're going to go out, we're dividing so that we can have an impact in our community. And it takes all of us to be involved in the mission to be effective. So whenever we meet tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to go out and we're going to try to reach out to people. And I hope that you'll be a part of that. But even if you can't be here at 5 o'clock, you're part of the mission. And you need to be on mission whether you're at the grocery store, you're looking for people. Whether you're at the ball field or the rec field or at at the gym, you're looking for people. When you're at work, you're looking for people. We need to pursue them wherever they are and as long as it takes. So what is our strategy for Operation Abraham? I want to give you one last look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, and I've been reading it a lot. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We are to restore those who have gone astray with a spirit of gentleness. We don't go with an attitude of condemnation. We go with an attitude of compassion. Uh, That word compassion, I mean, uh, well, that word gentleness really describes the manner in which a horse trainer would would train a, a wild stallion. He does it with compassion. He does it with patience. He does it with gentleness. And he tries to rein in that wild stallion. And that's how we're to reach out to those who've gone astray. Let me give you some practical things to consider as you begin to reach out to people. Number one, you need to pray for that person that God has already put on your heart. Maybe this morning while we're talking about this, God has put somebody on your heart. Begin to pray for that person right now. And for God to give you an opportunity to reach out to them. You know, we begin the battle on our knees. You know, somebody told me this past week, they said, you know, it's a humbling thing to get on your knees before God. And they said, you know what's even more humbling? is to walk that aisle and get on your knees at that altar. That's humbling. And we bathe these things in prayer. Number two, examine your own heart. Ask God to remove from you any attitude of condemnation, any air of elitism, any holier-than-thou attitude from your heart. Number three, make sure that your love for God and your love for your brother or sister in Christ are your motivations for why you're reaching out. Number four, ask God to give you the proper words to speak when you have an opportunity. Ask God to help you know what to say and the manner in which to say it. Ask God to help you be authentic and compassionate. And I want to give you one last verse and we'll, we'll be done. It's verse 16. So it's a wonderful verse. It says, So that he, Abraham, brought back all the goods and brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Wouldn't it be a joy if we could get back all those people who belong to First Baptist and get them back into fellowship With us. It's so important. We need all of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to be engaged and active at our church. Do you realize what a gap is left when one person is absent? Just one. That's why it's so important for you to be present and involved. We need everybody to be in fellowship. We really can't function without without all of our people. 
Let me ask you this question in closing. Who do you know that's drifted away that maybe God wants you to reach out to? Who do you know that maybe has been captivated by the world in some fashion? Would you come in just a few moments when we have our invitation and say, God, I want you to help me to reach out to them in the way that you would ask me to? Or maybe, maybe just this morning you're the one who's drifted away. Maybe you're here this morning, but maybe in your heart, you might be present physically, but maybe in your heart you are distant. You're far away from God. And you realize you are not where God wants you to be. Maybe that's where you are. And maybe this morning you're thinking, you know, I'm so much like Lot. I mean, I've just lost my testimony. I've lost my joy of my salvation. I've, I've lost my family. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my influence. I've just lost so much. God can't possibly bring me back. You know, only God can take something that's broken and put the pieces back together. Y'all might not know this, and maybe you do. The last time we heard of Lot in Genesis 13, well, really it's Genesis 19, he was off with his daughters in a cave. And they had gotten him drunk. And you remember the outcome. Those two daughters carrying his child, and a people group came from those children. And one of those people groups were the Moabites. The Moabites, those are Lot's descendants. And so you read about that in Genesis 19, and it's much later when you hear about that again, and it's in the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. And she, she went back to Canaan with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was a Moabite. She was married to, to Naomi's son who died, and now she goes back to Canaan, and she's now uh, a widow. And there's a man there named Boaz. And Boaz, to, to be able to pay for her, has to pay the redemptive price for her. He is her kinsman redeemer. Did you know that Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer? He has paid the price for you, just like Boaz paid for, for Ruth in the book of Ruth. You know what's ironic about that story? It's such a beautiful story about how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. But do you know what's amazing about that story? Ruth ended up being married to Boaz. And did you know that Ruth, this Moabite woman, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ? That's God's grace. That's God's ability to take some of our blunders and transform it into a blessing. Now God's not saying, well, go out and sin so I can give you grace. That's not what He's saying. But what He is saying is if you are distant, if you come back, I can restore. I can do amazing things. Would you be willing? To come back. God can do amazing things if you trust Him. I believe it. I would not be here if I didn't believe it to be true. So as we come to this time of invitation, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads with me just for a moment. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to respond however the Lord leads you. Maybe you don't even know Christ and maybe today you just need to come. I'll be here. I'd love to talk to you. Maybe you just need to come kneel at this altar. Maybe you're the one that's distant. You need to come. Or maybe you know somebody who else has, has kind of lost their way and you want God to give you the resources to reach out to them. Would you come? Lord, as we come to these moments of invitation, we are completely dependent on you. Lord, we are solely dependent on you to do a work in us. Your word says very clearly, 
that you are the vine, we're the branches. We can do nothing apart from you. So at this moment, I just pray your Holy Spirit, direct our hearts, direct our thoughts, help us to be surrendered and obedient, whatever you tell us to do. And so, Lord, right now, we just come to you and ask for your direction. We ask for your wisdom, your discernment, to know how you want us to proceed. Lord, if somebody's out of touch with you, I pray you draw them back. Lord, if someone, uh, you put someone on, on somebody's heart, Lord, I pray you give them the boldness and the courage to act on it and reach out to them in love and compassion. So, Lord, we know you love those who have gone astray more than we do. So right now, we just ask that you help us to be your search and rescue team. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you respond as to every question. Be?